Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. What a year! Thank you for joining us throughout 2023, tuning in to our conversations each week and building your civic action toolkits alongside us in the process. Next year is an election year, and it's a big year for democracy in America. You can rely on us, Future Hindsight, to bring you an independent perspective into what's at stake and what you can do about it at the local, state, and national level all throughout 2024. But before we get there, this year isn't over just yet. This week, we're thrilled to share an episode from our good friends at Democracy-ish. Danielle Moody and Wajahat Ali are dedicated to fighting for democracy and preserving your sanity in a time when both are under active assault. And if you remember, we had both of them on the podcast at the beginning of this year. So it's only right that we end this year with them too. Over the last several years, our politics have been pushed from a place of collaboration to bold-faced loyalty tests. On this episode of Democracy-ish, Danielle and Waj are joined by author and NPR Morning Edition co-host Steve Inskeep, whose latest book is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. The three of them discuss why dissent is necessary and how it is as American as apple pie. Let's listen in. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahat Ali. And we are very excited uh, to welcome to Democracy-ish for the very first time uh, author and host Steve Inskeep, who is the co-host of Morning Edition, uh, the most widely heard radio news program in the United States, um, and has traveled all over the nation and around the world for NPR News, interviewing presidents, warlords, authors, musicians. I mean, I love this rundown so very much. Um, and is the author of five books, uh, including his latest, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, which tells Lincoln's life story through his meetings with people who disagreed with him. I can't think of a more timely book. Waj, I will turn it over to you for movie phone intro. Oh, yeah. uh, this is what I look forward to, Steve. Every time we have uh, a guest about twice a month, I, I do my movie phone voice because I'm a child. Uh, and so just indulge me for a second as I try to shamelessly sell your book. Steve Inskeep's latest book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America, <laughs> reconstructs 16 of President Lincoln's encounters with diverse people, including activist Frederick Douglass, Justice John A. Campbell, a conspiracy theorist, an emissary, a strategist, Union General George B. McClellan, and finally, his wife, First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln. By Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah. you. That's yeah. why, that's that's why well they done. pay me the big money. Well yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. And, and the big money, by the way, is, is uh, just some hummus once a month right. in New York. Correct. But, but I'm really happy. Hummus. <laughs> and chai. Yeah. Uh, and chai. It's, you know, Steve, thank you for sending us the book early. I have it right behind me. Uh, and and in the, the structure of the book is interesting because you, you take all the research. Thankfully, a lot of people have written about this young man named Lincoln who's doing, who's doing great work, just like Frederick yes, Douglass. Exactly. Yeah. 
and and you reconstruct these, uh, if you will, these these conversations that he had. Sixteen of them, and and some of these names, like like Frederick Douglass, you put him as the activist, right? Uh, uh, Union General George B. McClellan, you put him as a strategist. You also have people who are uh, dissidents, uh, people who you know, and you run the whole gamut. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, Lincoln went through a civil war. There were people in this country literally willing to secede from this nation to create a separate nation for slavery. Lincoln had to fight those people. He had to win over them. He had to bring them back, but he couldn't because, of course, he died. He paid for it with his life. But he had to convince even people in his own party and fellow white men that, hey, this is a cause worth fighting for, worth dying for. And it's a good reminder because you fast forward and people are like, oh, this, this type of division never happened, where we're seeing literally a part of America that no longer believes in facts. They live on Earth 3. They believe in conspiracy theories. It's impossible. We can't win them over. Hell, me and Danielle say this. Like, I say this on this mm -hmm. show. I think I lost, I think we've lost 35% of those folks for life. But Lincoln nonetheless still tried. And so in setting this up and knowing the current political and cultural climate, you're an NPR, you know, you talk to these folks. Is there any lesson that we, the majority, can learn from Lincoln in at least trying to win over those folks who seem so far gone? And is yeah. there any parallels to, to what we're witnessing today? Oh, my gosh. Um, there are some parallels. I should take one off the table for the moment anyway. People ask me, are we heading for another civil war? I don't really think so because mm. it's hard to figure what it would be about. I mean, you know, slavery was a very clear thing and it was an organization of society. It was really deep. It was really horrible. Uh, and it was something worth fighting a war over, honestly, if you were going to have to do that to get rid of it. Uh, it's hard to see the equivalent thing today, even though we are profoundly divided on a great many um, issues. You said something that is key to the whole argument, though. You used the concept of the majority. People worry about how divided we are, except that's kind of what democracy is. It's even what free society is. If we all agreed, that would be some kind of totalitarian state. Um, so disagreement is what we're about. And the goal, if you want to sustain a democracy, is not to get everybody on board, but to have a majority on board, mm. which is what Lincoln struggled desperately to do. And you hit on another thing. When we look back on the 19th century, there's an electorate of millions of people it's not 100% white men, but it's overwhelmingly white men. No women, a few people of color in a few states could vote. Um, and that electorate, probably almost all of it, had views of one kind or another that we would find objectionable. And the challenge of someone like Abraham Lincoln is to work with the electorate that he had to try to move it in a proper direction which gives, I think, another dimension to his achievement. You know, he's got that famous line in his first inaugural about appealing to the better angels of our nature. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But it was kind of a rough crowd he was saying that to. And he had to get in there politically and figure out, how can I persuade a majority of people that it is in their interest to do what I want them to do? Um, and he had to think really hard about the person on the other side of the argument to build a coalition and also accept that he wasn't going to persuade everybody. You know, I, I think that what is really interesting here um, in, in terms of the way that you lay out your book is that the, the people um, with whom Lincoln was corresponding with 
were not his, you know, in his cabinet, right? They were not his, um, his essential advisors. But what I think is explained here is the idea that differing, right? Dissent is necessary, like you said, in a democracy. And when we move and we're watching our political climate move to a space of sycophants, move to a space of loyalty to a person uh, rather than to country and to a shared understanding of values. Who are you uh, referring the, to? I can't figure out. I know. It's so weird. It's to. so, it's yeah. so odd. We're keeping um, this very NPR-ish. He, you know, it's, it's so, it's so difficult. NPR-ish. But how, like, talk to us though about the importance of, at the importance and the value in bringing in different voices and diverse voices in order to think about how we reshape a country that is becoming increasingly diverse, increasingly complex with the issues that we're facing that are not only America's issues, but they are global issues from the environment to the economy to bodily autonomy and so forth and so on. Yeah. Um, Listening to different people is important, and I think that a lot of us have become frustrated with it, disgusted with it. We think it's naive because you're never going to persuade the person on the other side. We even think it's morally wrong. You know, why should I associate with this person who holds this terrible view? Um, Or it's a betrayal because I'm supposed to be loyal to my tribe. I shouldn't be talking to the other person. I mean, there's a version of this on the right. There's a version of this on the left. There's a lot of versions in between. Um, and it's just hard to have these conversations. And I think part of the reason is that we collectively, and I don't mean everybody, uh, but a lot of us maybe miss the point of the conversations and Lincoln shows us what they are. Uh, it's true that we're not often going to persuade the people on the other side. I mm-hmm. mean, who would like go to Thanksgiving and you run into your uncle who has these terrible views and you have two hours with this person and you think you're going to change his mind about something he's believed for 30 you know, years or 50 years or however long he's been on earth, um, that's going to be a real challenge. Um, but Lincoln was going for something else. He often didn't change people's minds. Um, people rarely changed his mind. His basic opinion of slavery was the same in 1837, the same first time he ever made a public statement about it, all the way until the, till the end of his life. There was some evolution and some added detail, but his basic view was this is wrong. Um, and the Constitution protects it, which is really unfortunate, but let's do uh, about it what we can. Um, but he would meet people who had way more radical views, way less radical views, utterly racist uh, uh, slave owners, um, and he wouldn't necessarily persuade them to change, but he might find some narrow part of the argument where they could agree. Uh, and even if they couldn't do that, because in some of these meetings, I mean, they're failures. They don't turn out turn up with anything. He would still try to find some way to get an advantage for himself or for his cause or for the country um, uh, out of this. And he had a lot of people in his coalition who thought he was massively wrong uh, on a lot of things, ranging from Frederick Douglass, who publicly excoriated him for being so slow to act against slavery, to various people who were literal slave owners but were allies 
of his and supported the United States when the rebellion came, which was, was you know, that doesn't make their slave owning any better, but it was important that they were on the right side, at least in that way. Uh, you know, speaking about how Lincoln was able to maneuver this for sake of making incremental gain, right? I, I am going to bring back the chapter on Frederick Douglass, whom you have as an activist. Cool. And, and for yeah. many of us, right, in this space, they say, oh, marketplace of ideas, have a debate, both sides, tribalism, this is how it works. And yet, uh, you know, just listening to you right now, Steve, and, and thinking about the chapter on Frederick Douglass, I'm reminded of the famous quote or the lines uh, in the poem by Langston Hughes, uh, Freedom, quote, I do not need my freedom when I'm dead. I cannot live on tomorrow's bread. In a great need, I live here too. And, uh, and, and I think about Frederick Douglass, who at that time was like, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, you're debating this out. Uh, they're trying to kill me. And now you yeah. fast forward to this moment, right, where Biden, and, and you know this, a lot of activists are like, we need fair wages. Uh, I need bodily autonomy. Uh, I just want to be black and survive on the streets. I don't have time to go talk to Uncle Chet in the Rust Belt and drink mm -hmm. real coffee, mm -hmm. right? And so what can Biden, because Biden is stuck in an interesting, unique situation. He is a white man, like Abraham Lincoln. He has the privilege. He has to build together this coalition. But there's so many of us, go down the list, people of color, Mexicans, immigrants, LGBTQ, black folks, who are like, you're telling me to win over Chet. Chet's trying to kill me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, I understand the frustration. I think I understand the frustration. Um, and it's got to be extreme for a lot of people in a lot of situations. But you raise the example of Biden. Um, Biden, I think, attempts some of the things that I describe in this book. Now, I'm not saying I'm comparing him to Lincoln or anything like that. Different people, different centuries, everything else. The greatest president, uh, by many people's estimation, was Abraham Lincoln. But he is attempting to reach out to the other side to make agreements and make deals where he can. And I think that grows out of a recognition of the system we have now, which was similar to what we had then, which is that you do need some buy-in from the other side to make the system work. And so somebody has to do some deal making. And, you know, if you're progressive, you're super frustrated with Joe Manchin, uh, except the guy has cast some votes that have been really, really important, including, you know, the vote for a while that kept Democrats in charge of the United States Senate. And uh, there are lots of reasons to, uh, if you're progressive, to really, really disagree with Liz Cheney but she played an important role. Uh, Mitt Romney, there are a variety of people who, if you're a Democrat, you could reach, you see them reaching, see someone reaching over to the other side and getting some value out of them, even if you disagree with them 90% of the time. And if you think of it in terms of just dealing with reality, um, I mean, the, the reality of democracy is that everybody has a vote. And even Uncle Chet, has a vote. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, go out and expose yourself to the depressing rants of Uncle Chet, because you can't persuade everybody. Um, but the idea is to find agreement where you can. And it could be that, that, that nine tenths of the time, you really need to just kind of get away from Uncle Chet, <laughs> you know, but there may be the one time out of 10 that Uncle Chet is useful to you, useful to your family, useful to your cause. Um, and, and that is what I think about. And I think that's what, what Lincoln shows here. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass, you, you gave that example. It's, he's just such an, he's such an awesome example. And I think he's, 
uh, very much a, a differ we must kind of person too. Frederick Douglass, of all the figures I researched in the 19th century, his writings and statements stand up the best of anybody. You know, Lincoln has a lot of things that he said that are just racist, that don't stand up very well at all. And lots of people do, even a lot of people on the right side of history have all these terrible things to our lights that they said. Douglas's stuff is very modern and feels very right. He knew what right was, even by our lights. But he decided in the mid-1850s, uh, actually in the late 1840s, that he didn't need to be a purist. People who were arguing for abolition were so strongly for abolition, they didn't even take part in the political system because it was all corrupted by slavery. They would burn the constitution, they would refuse to vote, and Douglas was such a person. And then he realized, he said, I'm in New York State, and New York State will let a black man vote. Racist rules because you had to have a property requirement that white people didn't, but I can vote, and this is power, and I wanna use this power. And he began supporting anti-slavery political parties. And then from 1856 onward, he supported the Republican Party, which was this big mainstream party that wasn't nearly radical enough for him, but he realized they had a chance to win and to strike a big blow against slavery. And I think he even understood mm. that if they ever did win control of the country, it would mean the destruction of slavery, even though the Republicans' rhetoric was more moderate than that. And Douglas threw himself and his newspaper, I mean, he had a voice, he was heard behind the cause of the Republican Party and behind Abraham Lincoln, even as he was simultaneously saying, Lincoln is slow, Lincoln is laggard, Lincoln is representing Negro hatred, which is a phrase that he actually used. But he understood there was some value in that interaction and he engaged himself in the fight as difficult as it was. And I should just emphasize again, to get back to the example of someone who feels directly threatened, he wasn't saying, I'm gonna go down to South Carolina and talk to these slave owners and see if I can talk reason into them. You know, so not the, gonna... not the Prager you, Frederick Douglass, the animated <laughs> Frederick Douglass that is being taught right now. Is that what you're saying, Steve? I guess it's what I'm saying, but he was <laughs> pragmatic. When he saw someone that he could deal with, he dealt with them even if he didn't agree with them about everything. You know, I, I think that what is really it, it's it's interesting to me that you say that Frederick Douglass, his his lectures, his writings, his speeches kind of stand the the test of time in comparison, because I think that often what I have found through black thought leaders, academics and scholars is that that is often the case um, because they are coming from a vantage point of one advocating, recognizing that you can't burn down this system just as is. You have to operate inside of this system that was actually meant um, for your dehumanization, you know, your dehumanization, for yeah. your destruction, right? That, you know, while, because I am a person that would love to burn the system down, right? But mm -hmm. I also worked on Capitol Hill. I've also worked inside, you know, of government for that very same reason that there has to be both an inside and an outside game if you are to actually move things forward. The question that I have for you is this though, what you said earlier about how people ask you whether or not we're headed towards a civil war. And I think that that question is with regard to 
Am I going to walk outside of my front door and see tanks rolling down the street? And do I need to be armed? Right. And, you know, just before we came on, I was sent from another one of my producers an article that was saying, you know, white supremacists are building shadow militias and, you know, plan to institute them, you know, uh, as we head into 2024 election cycle. And I wonder how dangerous you think that the current verbal, right, civil war is that we are experiencing when you have a former president of the United States that is calling for the execution of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, where you have a former president and his allies that are saying that people should be hung for treason, um, that that type of rhetoric goes to this idea of this huge divide and how dangerous it is in terms of what we perceive in historical senses of being a civil war and where we are right now. I think you raise a fair distinction. I did say I don't expect a civil war, like the whole country dividing up and red states against blue states and armies marching against each other. But I would never say I don't expect political violence which is maybe what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, there could be some because that's kind of America. I mean, look at American yep. history. There's a lot of political violence in American history. Um, we would like to pretend otherwise. And it certainly is true that we had peaceful transfers of power virtually all the time, uh, except in 1860, where there was where there was a you know a little war um, and and 2021. But uh, I, there has often been a low or medium level of political violence in different places. Um, and that is especially true in times of social change. If you study the period right after the American Civil War, you guys know all this, but I'm talking about Reconstruction. The mm -hmm. decade or so after yep. the Civil War, when black men at least were allowed into government and allowed to vote in Southern states, and they formed coalitions with white men um, and governed a number of states for a period of time, uh, until federal troops that supported them withdrew and white supremacists came back again. Uh, and in this case, I'm not even like calling them names. It's what they called themselves. It's what they yep. said their cause was. And they're literal, they were literal wars. I was once in the governor's mansion in Arkansas, which of course was one of the Confederate states. Uh, and it's the mansion where Bill Clinton once lived. Uh, been a lot of interesting governors come to think of it. Uh, and I was being shown a painting over the fireplace in, I think, the living room or one of the sitting rooms. And it shows a battle. And you're looking out and there's like a river and some kind of riverboat firing guns at the shore. And in the foreground are like a couple of cannon. And so they're firing back and forth. Um, and it was explained to me, this was a, an election that I was looking at. There was a governor's election in, I think, 1874 in Arkansas, and it was settled partly by a literal gun battle. So the idea that someone would open fire in the 2024 election, I'm sad to say, is kind of historically normal in America. It's happened mm. from time to time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm mentally prepared for that. Um, and, and that's a serious thing to think about, especially for somebody in the line of fire. But let's... I, I, at the same time, we, we somehow need to keep a level head and see how serious it is and just be prepared for whatever happens. Can I, you know, drilling it down a bit, and because you have a chapter in your book uh, uh, where Lincoln talks to a conspiracy theorist, Duff Green. Yeah. Uh, and, 
and you know all this is connected because the myths the bad history the grievances the conspiracy theories lead to violence <laughs> the you know it led to the assassination of abraham lincoln right the lost yeah. cause and now you fast forward and we have a new version of the lost cause right it's called the replacement theory right uh, the white man and the Western civilization is being weakened by the others, black people, immigrants, women, Muslims, LGBTQ. And this conspiracy theory has radicalized people to commit terrorism. Uh, and unlike before, Steve, as you know, because you're a host of NPR, they didn't have WhatsApp <laughs> to spread <laughs> the lost cause. They didn't have Twitter. They didn't have one of the world's richest man who essentially becomes their spokesman uh, and zeets it all, all over Twitter. <laughs> Uh, is that how faith. you pronounce that? Is it a zeet? Is that I what it is? No one knows. No one knows. Okay. Exits, zeets, what, Ex, muskets. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, you know, what can we, it, can we learn something here about, because, you know, Danny, I'm sure all of us now, we're at this point where we don't live in a shared reality with some otherwise educated, informed people. Like, I just can't even have a conversation, even in good faith, if I try to talk to them. They live on Earth 3, Steve. Uh, uh -huh. And so this is nothing new. Because you mentioned it, you know, his, his uh, Lincoln's correspondence with Duff Green. But what can we, if at all, learn from that and apply it to today? Well, I mean, I guess from that particular incident in the book, you learn that there are limits. You, you're right. Duff Green is this amazing character um, who was a newspaper man and a propagandist and prominent for like 30 some years and knew multiple presidents. Um, and Murdoch, uh, <coughs> Murdoch, Murdoch, excuse me. Kind of, excuse me. He was, you know, at one point he was a free speech guy who insulted a congressman in the newspaper. And so the congressman beat him so bad he went into the hospital. So he had, he dictated an editorial that repeated his insults in the paper from the hospital. And everybody's like, wow, hero of free speech, but also a real a-hole. And then, you know, you get along farther and he became more and more obsessed with slavery. He was a slave owner. And he did develop all these conspiracy theories about how it was all connected, that, that the enemies of slavery were importing immigrants to vote against slavery in this terrible and illegal way. Uh, you realize there's not any, anything that much new about some of the rhetoric we're having right now. It's kind of astonishing. Um, and at the very eve of the Civil War, he went and met his friend, Abraham Lincoln, which is another unbelievable thing. Abraham Lincoln was friends with people like this, uh, had friendly relations with them, went and met his friend, Abraham Lincoln, and tried to persuade him to reach a compromise with the South by essentially enshrining slavery forever. And they have this conversation and it's clear by now that even though they've been living in the same country, they have totally different worldviews, totally different ideas of everything. And uh, the best account of the meeting is from Duff Green's perspective. So you see it from his perspective of believing that Lincoln is the guy who's been taken over by zombies or something like that. And he's trying to persuade uh, Lincoln to do this. And in the end, I mean, Lincoln gives some thought to whether he can do something here, but in the end does nothing. Puts down a line and he's like, I can't deal with these people. I can't deal with their demands. If I give in to them, we're going to be jerked back years in time. You know, I've just been elected president. We've made this huge leap against slavery, and there's no way that they're going to claw it all back by threatening to leave the Union and start a war. And uh, he then is inaugurated, and before too long, the South starts the war. So there are limits to what you can do, but even in that circumstance, 
when someone says, I'm out of the system, I'm done, I'm not going to do democracy anymore, the saving grace is having a majority on your side. Mm. And Lincoln did and held a majority together. And that was a democratic, small d democratic majority in favor of the union, which included even people who violently disagreed with Lincoln on every issue. And it became a majority on the battlefield, too. I mean, the fundamental reason that the Union won the war was they had a much bigger population, and so they were able to, to, to field a much larger army. And then mm -hmm. as they began freeing enslaved people and enlisting them as soldiers, the army got larger still. So that democratic advantage became, in effect, a battlefield advantage. Again, I don't expect us to get to that point. But there is strength in numbers if you can assemble a majority, no matter what the other side is saying and doing. You know, what, what, when, when I think about um, the term that you use, uh, clawing back, right? There uh, was a way to claw things back. And what comes up... Excellent what, claw action there, Steve. Right. Thank, you, thank you. That's yeah. my visual aid. Visual aid yes. what, what comes up for me uh, when I hear that is... Um, uh, the Supreme Court. And I think about the way that the Roberts Court has been able to claw back gains and rights uh, over the last 40 and 50 years in during his term, specifically uh, in the last few years with a supermajority of grifting Republicans that are on the bench. And so when I think about, you know, Lincoln, his ability to move forward because he had the majority of people, and I think about this country and Waj will say 70%, uh, you know, 30% are gone forever, which leaves us with 70%, right? But then I think, oh, minus these really important nine people that no one elected uh, to their lifetime positions that we realize there are no checks and balances are that uh, that there there are no checks and balances with and are essentially rebuffing the will and desire of the people because we are now operating in a highly rigged system and so i just i guess my question is when you look at lincoln leading a divided nation, right? Bringing us through war. And you think to yourself, there are lessons to learn here. I think that the Republican party did absolutely learn lessons. I think that they learned how to skirt around the will of the people and how to undermine democracy in the most intricate way. You know, I, I think it was, uh, um, I'm, I'm trying to think, who said my one of my favorite uh, favorite uh, terms, which is you know fascism is like plucking a chicken. Nobody notices that you're you know that you're taking one feather at a time. It's if you buzz the chicken, right? But what Republicans have been able to do over the last forty years is pluck the chicken, right? So I'm just and as I as I say that, so I'm just wondering how this time matches up against his majority that he had behind it? Um, I think that there is, in a way, a check and balance against the Supreme Court, and it is, strangely enough, public opinion. I think public opinion matters to the court because the justices recognize, uh, Stephen Breyer, who recently retired, 
uh, even wrote this in a little book a couple of years ago. I mean, they have nothing to enforce their judgments except the public's respect for them, the public's faith in them. Um, and you would like to think that judges would make their judgments purely on the law, right? But uh, I mean, you're, you're positing to me that some of the justices are essentially political actors. And uh, if we're correct about that, if you're correct about that, then they need to worry about public opinion. They need to worry in the long term about losing public support. I think Roberts, uh, even though you probably disagree with him on 80% of the issues, is an institutionalist who would like to preserve the credibility of the court. Thought, for example, that the Dobbs decision on abortion went a step farther than could be justified and would rather that they do narrower and narrower decisions that are less and less um, controversial because he probably knows what can happen over time. And it happened in Lincoln's time. The Dred Scott decision, which was this you know, really bad kind of engineered decision where Roger Tawney, the uh, chief justice, wanted to just settle all controversies over slavery. And so he took this occasion of a guy who'd sued for his freedom, denied him that, and then said, let me give answers to everything else just because I feel like it. This was not only denounced at the time, but ignored at the time. He said in his ruling, uh, black people can never be citizens because of their race, which means they definitely can't vote. And the states, the few states that allowed black men to vote just ignored it and continued allowing black men to vote. The Connecticut legislature literally passed a resolution saying whatever he said uh, in that opinion is just extrajudicial opinion. It's not law. It doesn't matter. A very large part of the country just ignored it. And even Abraham Lincoln read this quote from Andrew Jackson, basically saying, uh, everybody gets to interpret the Constitution for themselves. The court's opinion is just somebody's opinion. That's a paraphrase. Uh, it's a shocking thing, actually, to hear. I'd hate to have anybody truly follow that today. But then when Lincoln became president, the same chief justice ruled against him. Lincoln's <laughs> army was fighting the rebellion. They arrested this guy who was burning railroad bridges in Maryland and trying to isolate the capital. And Tawney sent a writ of habeas corpus. He said, bring this man to court, release him. And the army said, nah, not going to do that. Uh, uh, our president's interpretation of the Constitution is that he doesn't have to do that. Goodbye. Um, and you, you would not want that to happen today. But Lincoln got away with it partly because the court had discredited itself in the eyes of so much of the country. Um, and you can kind of see it if you read some of the current rulings of the court. You can see that especially Chief Justice Roberts is disturbed by the drift of the court, disturbed by the rulings that seem to go farther than the case requires, disturbed by the rulings that, that are partisan. And he's also bothered when the liberal justices say, even to Roberts himself, you have gone farther than your authority allows just because you feel like it. Um, I think they feel that criticism, and it is not a total check on anybody's power, but it's part of the equation for the, the court. Uh, it's an endless debate. I mean, I think, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on now. No, no, you it's talk great. about it's... people denying democracy. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the recent example of the voting rights cases in Alabama. Let's think about mm -hmm. that for a minute. That's one where I'd say the Supreme Court is on your side of the argument. 
And the court is saying repeatedly, no, 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 you actually have to follow the Constitution and the Voting Rights Act here. And Alabama just keeps saying, or the state legislature keeps saying, we, we don't feel like it. We don't want to do that. I mean, their argument is it's racist to do the anti-racist thing or however you want to put it. But in any case, they're, they're just, just ignoring repeatedly the, uh, the lower courts and the Supreme Court and keep getting told to obey the law and obey the order of the court. There clearly are some actors in the system who just think if they just keep pushing and just keep pushing and just keep pushing and just keep pushing, eventually something cracks. There's something <clears throat> fundamentally undemocratic about that, really. Um, I mean, at some point, I mean, you don't have to give up your beliefs, but you have to accept, okay, I lost this round and now I have to fight it again in the next election or the election after that. That's kind of how democracy works. You continue the debate in other, uh, in, in other forms. So you do have actors who are pushing that way, but there are also instances where the Supreme Court itself has been the check on them. Everything I think is, is, is complicated, and for the most part, that is good because it means no one player has all the power. You know, uh, so much of what you've said, so much of which, which is in the book, it's humbling and sobering because we realize that we're probably living through not necessarily a remake, but a reboot. And it makes you realize that so much of mm -hmm. what we have achieved has come at the expense of violence and pain and struggle. But there's also uh, I think something, an optimistic thread here is that Lincoln and Americans, the majority went through this in a much worse way in, in the 1860s. Uh, and the optimist in me says, you got to fight for democracy. You can't just sit. Yeah. Uh, and and, and yeah. I think what the, these, these chapters that you have shown with these various conversations is that you need different strategies in place in order to move forward. Uh, and sometimes that movement comes through inches but nonetheless, at least it's movement and lives are saved and democracy is saved. It's, it's a fantastic book uh, about one of the most uh, fantastic uh, presidents that we've had, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, hopefully it has lessons for those who truly care about our democracy uh, and how we can persist, resist and move forward. The book is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America by Steve Inskeep, who we can also hear on this small independent channel called NPR. <laughs> uh, Steve, as you can tell, me and Danielle are nerds. I could have dissected every chapter with you, uh, wow. but we promised 30 minutes and we kept you six minutes uh, above schedule. So I hope you forgive us uh, and best of luck on this book. I've really enjoyed this conversation, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm with Jonathan Lee. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Next week on Future Hindsight, we're kicking off 2024 strong with Lala Wu. She's the co-founder and the executive director of Sister District, an organization that builds enduring progressive power in state legislatures. Join us on Future Hindsight each week as we bring you an independent perspective into what's at stake and what you can do about it at the local, state, and national level all throughout this coming banner election year. That's next year on Future Hindsight. And before I go, Happy New Year and best wishes for a joyous holiday, a fantastic start to 2024, and peace around the world. Until next time, stay engaged.
This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.